Uh, hey everybody, this is Sean. This is Akil. We hope you guys enjoyed our last podcast that we released last week. Um, and yeah, we want we we kind of want to make this like a weekly thing in which we discuss different topics. Yeah, um, and we kind of want to make it a mix of field hockey related challenges and then pair that with you know an interesting story that we heard about this past week or something we've been thinking about about the broader uh, the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So why don't Sean? Why don't you start off and tell us what this week's topic is going to be about <clears throat> and how you kind of came to this yeah um so this week we decided to kind of unpack uh the lack of investigative journalism surrounding startups um and i kind of approached this uh, a couple of weeks ago when i kind of read a story in it was either vox or the verge or something like that about joy ito who used to be the head of the mit media lab like a really prestigious institution in the startup community um who kind of came out and was found to have ties to jeffrey epstein like a notorious pedophile um, and I think the interesting part of the story was that this was kind of a system uh, of abuse that Joy Ito had kind of taken money from Jeffrey Epstein, hadn't told anybody about it, and had a, kind of intentionally covered the fact that he had taken money from someone like this. Um, and it was really surprising to me that you know someone that you know renowned in the startup community could have been entangled with someone so terrible. Um, and so that's kind of the, the viewpoint that I approached this, and I just kind of started wondering, you know. Is this a, a broader problem? Is this a problem that you know, really only has one instances? Yeah. So Sean originally came to me with, not with the podcast idea itself, but he came to me and asked me like, hey, what is what does journalism look like in entrepreneurship and startups? And <clears throat> honestly, I didn't have an answer for him at the time just because most of our news that we read today is saturated with politics, culture, um, pop culture, things like that, which is fine. But um, a lot of the journalism that goes into tech startups is like basically publications you'll find like Wired, Recode, Vox, The Verge, TechCrunch. And these, these stories are basically, these publications publish a lot of stories that paint startups in a positive light. Um, whether that's to raise stock prices, etc., we don't really know. But that's been the general trend of um, startup reporting, um, what we've seen. Um, but... So I didn't really have an answer for Sean at the time, but what got me interested in making this podcast was I'm taking a class right now on startup innovation in Chicago. Um, and it's basically the blend of journalism and startups. Um, and we talked to a lot of journalists who report on these startups. So we had um, John Pletz who released a story on outcome health and kind of their downfall. Um, that's kind of how I got interested in this whole like investigative reporting into startups yeah yeah and i think one caveat to that too is like even when um you know journalists cover startups in a negative light mm-hmm. you know their primary objective is to like bring up more startups right like bring you know, shine the limelight and a lot of cool startups that are coming up their primary role isn't to be an investigative journalist right and i think that's the part that we want to unpack a little bit more today right um so yeah i think outcome health also kind of hits a little close to home for us because it was a startup founded yeah. by a northwestern alum yeah. someone who used to be very active in the Northwestern entrepreneurial ecosystem, albeit before the garage and some of the institutions that we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that may be a good place to start. So if you want to kind of walk us through the story of Outcome Health and yeah. what you learned about it. Absolutely. So Outcome Health is essentially, um, the way I understand it is it's a company that puts a device, smart devices in hospitals, um, which pharmaceutical companies will pay to put their advertising on. 
So their value, their value proposition is basically like, we deliver better information, more relevant information to patients in the hospital rooms than the current model, which is, I guess, brochures or pharma companies coming into the hospitals, which is now regulated by FDA and things like that. So in a way, it's kind of a workaround for pharma companies and provides a big value proposition for pharma companies who are trying to sell these drugs. Um, so Outcome Health had a meteoric rise, a lot would say. It was um, what one would call a unicorn. It was evaluated at a billion dollars or multiple, billion multiple dollars. billions of dollars. Um, and so this is before it went public or anything. And so a lot of its investors um, at the time were, um, I, I guess what happened was um, they, they lied about the numbers that they were getting, the data. Um, they kind of fudge the data on like how many hospitals they were at, their customer reach, because um, advertising business is all about how much reach you can get. And they're essentially, they were essentially lying about their numbers. So when people started to get more skeptical of it um, and look into the numbers, they realized like, hey, they aren't really reaching the target numbers that they should be. So um, the CEOs had to leave the company. So now today they're kind of still working on remedying a lot of the damage that was done um, rebranding the entire company and things like that. So I think what Sean and I want to talk about is like, how do we let a situa situation like this arrive? Like, how does a company have such a meteoric rise and people and valuations at crazy numbers without people understanding yeah. what's going on? Yeah, and I think it's it's somewhat the idea of investors can got up can get caught up in this cult of personality, right? Or they can get caught up in an idea and um, you know, just kind of start buying into it just because other people are buying into it. And I think that allows a company <coughs> to have a really meteoric rise and get away with a lot of things that public companies who have a lot more scrutiny around them won't be able to get away with. Um, I think the classic example, if you want to kind of transition to like the, the distinction between Theranos and Outcome Health, right? Theranos, um, you know, now an infamous name for all the documentaries and the book that came out about it. Um, was a company, is a healthcare company founded by Elizabeth Holmes, a Stanford dropout, and basically just promised this idea that you could run a couple hundred different blood tests with a single drop of blood. And the tech was fraudulent, you know, she was defrauding her investors, and she ultimately ended up going to jail. Um, but I think it, it's really just this idea that, I think what we were really confused about was how did it take so many years and so many billions of dollars going into this company before someone realized that you know, it, it, the tech behind it was fraudulent or they, were, they weren't reporting the right numbers or, you know, whatever it may be. I think it was just that lack of due diligence on the investor's part and then, you know, the lack of you know, investigative journalism around this topic um, was really what led to a lot of these problems. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, just going off that same idea is the, as like Sean touched on a really important thing, the difference between public companies and private companies. Mm -hmm. When you're a private company, you have no obligation to release any information to the public. Um, so you don't really have to give the exact numbers. You don't have to report anything. People are just writing these stories and believing it based on reporting, right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there's a burden on the reporter, the investigative reporter, to kind of get the real truth and the information. Uh, a quote that John, John Pletz said, who did this story on Outcome Health, was, People just really need to ask, how are you going to make your money, right? It's the most simple but overlooked question. How are you making money? And not enough people ask that. People focus on, like, 
what's the new technology like how is this going to change the industry which are all great questions but at the end of the day if you're going to be a publicly traded company if you're going to have these evaluations you need to have some sort of um, business model that's going to provide some sort of money so that's the question i think people are either too afraid to ask or just haven't been asking yeah i completely agree with that right like what you touched on before like a lot of this does fall on like the tech journalist and the investors to be more scrutinized, right? Like we as the public, like I can't go into Theranos' office and ask for their financials, right? Like they'll laugh me off, but the reporter has the ability to do that, right? Like when they're going in, they have the ability to ask hard questions and get answers or not get answers. And I think in that sense, it was, you know, there's a lot of tech French journalists like Kate Clark, right? She, you know, she, she talks about this multiple times, but like a lot of times she just says, I have to take the CEO's word for it, right? Like, I don't know if he's lying to me or not, and like that's a big reason why these private companies get away with this stuff. It's just because the CEO can say something, and the tech journalist kind of has to believe it. <clears throat> so yeah, going off of that, another thing that is like kind of interesting is companies will hire their PR departments before a lot of other departments. Like the PR is one of the most important things because they're the ones that manage all of the kind of investigative reporting and like any any sort of media surrounding the company right and because media and the hype around companies and the reporting around companies is so important nowadays because that's what builds evaluations um pr companies become extremely important in a company um so i asked john i was like with all these issues right of like private companies not having a responsibility or an obligation how do you go about reporting on a private company um and he said two things to me that i remember he said be open to it being successful so don't go in with the scrutin scrutinizing eye necessarily you might have it in the back of your mind but be open to it being successful but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask the tough questions which is how how do you make money second thing he said was a lot of it is luck like a lot of it just like the Theranos story, for example, I don't remember who exactly broke it, but it was it was based on luck that they got that they found out about like what's really going on in Theranos, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is luck in terms of like figuring out what's going on. I think that what happened to Outcome, not um, now that I'm thinking about it, is so Outcome, um, as I said, puts these smart devices in hospitals, right? And so a company like this would naturally or typically outsource their device manufacturing to either a Chinese company or something like that, their TVs, tablets, everything. What Outcome did was it took a, an interesting approach. They started to do their own manufacturing business in TV, right? Which isn't a smart business move from the looks of it because you lose a lot of money because Chinese competitors can make it for a lot cheaper. So that was kind of the first suspicious thing that um, – investigators start to see is why is this company investing in manufacturing TVs when they should be putting resources towards their advertising mm -hmm. so that was kind of the first hint at okay something's fishy is going on here some the numbers don't line up so something as simple as that people need to pick up on and kind of start asking questions and I think that's how yeah so how much of this do you think falls on like a whistleblower somebody internally um <clears throat> I don't know it's if it's so much as a whistleblower, whistleblowers can definitely help or someone internally can help start the fire. I mean, we've talked about like Google, Facebook, all these kinds of internal uprisings or internal mm -hmm. protests. Those are all great. But I think when it comes to th those definitely help. 
and can start an impetus, but it's really the responsibility of the people to pay attention and push journalists to ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. Because if people are okay with hearing these kind of same stories about companies, then journalists will be okay on reporting them and people inside won't have an incentive to actually come out and talk to the media. Okay, that makes sense. So if like there are tech journalists who develop this like personality that, hey, I'm going to go out and scrutinize these bad companies, mm -hmm. then, you know, the public kind of follows along with that and is like, okay, we should do more of this. And then the, the, you know, the whistleblowers are like, mm -hmm. okay, like I'm more comfortable coming out now. Well, I, yeah, I was saying that I was thinking more along the lines of the people have to push to see more investigative journalism okay. that makes because sense. the demand is what drives <laughs> journalism, right? Mm -hmm. People aren't going to report on something that people aren't going to read, right? So... And that's the sad truth of journalism is like you have to have readership to survive. So if people aren't valuing kind of investigative reporting into startup companies and startups and valuations, then people aren't going to – publications aren't going to want to report on them and whistleblowers or internal people aren't going to want to come to media. That makes sense. So it starts really with the people, the democracy of the news and things like that to really push these kinds of stories. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. Maybe that's a good segue into the – more recent example of all of this um and in some ways i think it's a very different uh story because you know we work is kind of the second company that we want to talk about but it, it is a problem of you know classic hype going wrong very fast right and and i think in retrospect hindsight is 2020 right now everybody's like oh yeah we knew from the beginning that we work is a terrible business right mm -hmm. we knew that it wasn't worth 45 billion dollars but when it was worth 45 billion dollars there was very few people who were like you know like let's go out and make sure that this company doesn't go bust, right? They just kind of let the valuation keep expanding, you know, mm -hmm. benchmark capital, Bill Gurley, like double down on the business, mm -hmm. right? They, you know, they're like, this, these gains look amazing to me on paper, so I'm going to keep doubling down. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, I think it, it, it's really easy in hindsight for everybody to be like, yeah, we knew this company was overvalued. And I think you know, a lot of people probably privately thought it was overvalued, mm -hmm. but it took the public markets to like really scrutinize this business. Right. And, them to cut valuations and fire Adam Newman and you know call his BS on a lot of things. So that brings up a question for me that I didn't have this: Who creates these valuations in in, in the private stage pre IPO things like that? Who is determining these things? Um, is it banks? Is it investors? Is it angels? Who is it? It's it's primarily investors, right? And in the case of in the case of WeWork, it was one particular investor called SoftBank, right? Um, and for those of you not familiar with like the venture capital world, SoftBank is like this behemoth, right? Their first fund was a hundred billion dollars, and it completely changed the venture capital landscape because there had never been a fund of that magnitude, right? So when SoftBank came into the arena and started putting, you know, like I think the number is now up to like eighteen billion dollars into WeWork, the valuation skyrocketed, right? Um, and I think it's one of WeWork's largest, uh, it's one of uh, SoftBank's largest positions is in WeWork. Another one is Uber, um, and you know, they completely changed the landscape. They're like, you know, we're going to put billions of dollars into these companies that we think are going to explode long term. And his long term, like Masayoshi Son's long term, is like hundreds of years, right? So his viewpoint on what venture capital is was very, very different than, you know, anything that we'd ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, like, in, in the case of WeWork, it was one particular investor who mm -hmm. kind of really started doubling down, throwing billions of dollars at this company, investing in this cult of personality around Adam Newman. And, and expecting that to return. So do you think these kinds of issues with valuations would be solved if companies like SoftBank did their due diligence and basically double, like scrutinized harder? Or do you think it's just a force of 
having when when a company goes public having so many eyes so many different investors looking at it and just the power of numbers is able to break down the company yeah i think it it is a, a mix of both right i think the like i have to say softbank probably did their due diligence but they really were betting on just like a long-term vision on the future of work right they're like we work is going to be the way that people are going to work in the future right it's going to break down the traditional office environment and it's going to move it to these co-working spaces and we're betting on we work to change that right i think the other part of all of that is what you mentioned right it's this idea that um you know i think it, it when they released their s1 right when they released this document identifying that they're going to go public a lot of different investors kind of called bs based on numbers right they had these super expensive long-term leases they had a lot of clients that were you know high volatility so startups that could easily go out of business if the economy went bad right a lot of their client base wasn't sustainable and they were losing billions of dollars every year um, and they're making these acquisitions left and right and and so i think there's a lot of things about the company that the power of numbers really helped with and you know helped drive out alan Nunez, ceo but i think it also fell on softbank you know like giving them a 47 billion dollar valuation really you know i think messed everything up in some sense because they were valuing them like they're a tech company but in reality what they are is like a real estate company right they're just transforming right. like office spaces into co-working spaces right right it's a real estate company <clears throat> yeah that's good um yeah i think that i guess we can lead into our next our last um point which is basically which which is the first one that brought Sean and I together, which mm -hmm. was the story of Joy Ito and the MIT Media Lab. Um, so essentially, what happened here is a New York Times, I think, broke a story. Yeah, I want to say the New York yeah. Times, or you know, everybody reported. On yeah, it yeah, yeah. Eventually, everyone. But uh, New York Times released a, the first place I read it was New York Times released a story on Joy Ito, basically the president of the. Yeah, media so lab. Yeah, the head of the MIT Media Lab. Yeah. Um, and he's this really well-known figure in Silicon Valley. Um, if you listen to Reed Hoffman's podcast, Masters of Scale, he's a guest on Masters of Scale. Mm -hmm. Um, he's really has been a staple of Silicon Valley for for over a decade now. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was, ba I think, he was the first director of the MIT Media Lab, mm -hmm. or one of the first directors mm -hmm. of the MIT Media Lab. And it, it, the MIT Media Lab is kind of like this moonshot lab, mm -hmm. um, that's associated with the Masters of Technology. And basically, they just kind of invest in these very long-term, incredible projects, and they have these PhDs working on it. So everything from like gene editing mm -hmm. to you know how can we cure cancer yeah. to a lot of different really interesting problems. They solve some of the the biggest like human problems. That I yeah, would say. Um, and I think that that is kind of the idea is you know how can we take the largest human problems that we're facing right and and find a solution to them. And they're investing in these really really crazy solutions and. Um, I think the effectiveness of the MIT Media Lab is still debated because a lot of these projects are, you know, 20 to 30 year timelines. But um, Joy Ito was definitely someone who was known as like a, a leader in the startup community. Um, but basically the story um, was that Joy Ito for a number of years had taken money from Jeffrey Epstein. And if you recognize that name, it's because Jeffrey Epstein is, you know, this uh, pedophile, the sex trafficker mm -hmm. who was also a, a financial and wealth yet, manager wealth manager essentially and a billionaire and he was basically part in partners with trump um he did wealth management for a number of politicians um, yeah so he was very well connected yeah. and a lot of people in a lot of different circles uh knew him pretty well but he you know joy ito intentionally took a lot of money from jeffrey epstein and tried to hide from the university and from any public records so you know the emails that were released were just astounding because mm -hmm. you know they used to refer to him as like j e right. or j and you know they you, you could tell like even as 
non-investigative journalist, I could tell that he was trying to cover up the fact that he was taking money from Epstein. Right. Um, and, you know, regardless of, of who you are and, you know, what the money's going towards, you can't mm-hmm. be taking money from someone like Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And I think that was what, you know, was really bothering me and ultimately what got Joy Depot fired as a media company. Right. And I think people only started to question, like, I'm not sure how someone find found out about the emails. I think it was a whistleblower. I want to say it was a mix of a whistleblower and some good right. investigative journalism. Right. I think because a lot of people are involved with the finances of the MIT Media Lab, and so I think this started to become, especially this was covered uncovered after Jeffrey Epstein's trial, right. I think. Yeah. So I think people in the Media Lab, like I guess us, felt uncomfortable with the idea. Who And there were, no, there were people who knew about this kind of funding, um, all along, I think after the trial, someone decided to step up and say, like, hey, yeah. this is this is bad. This is messed up. So. Yeah, I think it was someone within the MIT Media Lab who really, really spoke up to both Joy Ito mm-hmm. and to others within the university. Um, but, I mean, I think in this case, it, the onus fell on a lot of people, right? It was the MIT president who should have taken the initiative to figure out, you know, where money was coming from right. such a prestigious institution within there, right. you know, within MIT. Um, it falls on... You know, people within the MIT media lab to go out and mm-hmm. call this out, and yeah. it falls on investigative journalists. And I also think like it falls on again the university to <laughs> have more transparency around like where their figures are coming from. Um, and this is like, this is kind of a recurring theme, right? Is transparency is like whether it's a private company, public company, or like an institution like MIT. This lack of transparency is really what's hurting our our democracy and killing our investigative journalism. Um, because without that, like we aren't able to be proactive about these kinds of issues. We're always reactive, right? And we're always saying like, okay, after this happens, now this is bad. Let's right? do a post post mortem. Exactly. What happened? Um, yeah, I think it's just I don't know what the the solution is, and I think mm-hmm. that's part of the discussion we want to spark today is you know what are possible solutions to this lack of investigative journalism? Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing that Akhil pointed out earlier was that a lot of these investigative journalists. <clears throat> people who have a background in investigative journalism, they're all based in D.C., right? right. Because that, to some degree, is where yeah. investigative journalism was birthed, birthed right? The right. Water, Watergate Hotel. Politics, yeah. Ever since Watergate, I guess, like, there's just been so many investigative journalists in D.C. just based out of G- D.C. and reporting on politics, which is good. We need that sort of investigative journalism. But, like, startups has been a relatively new thing. Silicon Valley is a relatively new thing. So it's going to take some time for us to, for publications to um, kind of start building offices there, um, starting investigative journalism practices there. Um, and again, like I said, it all comes down to the public, right? If the public wants to hear these stories, right, then the, then the publications will, will deliver, right? Um, so it really is on the onus of the public, in my opinion, as a journalist, right? It's the onus of the public to kind of push journalists yeah, to, to kind of do this, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> I completely agree with that. And I think it is really just like, like you mentioned, right, the onus is on the public and that just start moving journalists out to San Francisco. <clears throat> but I think my, my question is really like, we've, we've seen startups for the past 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. We saw, you know, you and I weren't very old for it, but you know, our parents witnessed the dot-com bubble. Right. And, you know, a lot of companies that had these crazy valuations, these ridiculous business models, mm-hmm. they all had, you know, uh, we're going to go public, and then they all, next day, just went to zero. Right, right. right. Um, and I think that's the beauty of the public markets, is their right. ability to kind of scrutinize and call these companies out. Right. But at the same time, like, 
I thought that would have spurred some sort of investigative journalism into startups because there's billions of dollars going into these companies and ultimately these investments are coming out to net zero. So, you know, it's it's been around for a while. You know, this problem's been around for a while. Why hasn't it kind of come up? Yeah. It's just been kind of part of a business cycle. People have just kind of taken it as part of a business cycle. I think it's an age-old human issue, a human problem. It's like when we see something good, um, Bitcoin, for example, right? When we see something that's very promising, it's hard for us to question it. It's hard for us to dig deep and be like, well, maybe there is something wrong with this because it, it does have the potential to change our world for the better. Um, so it's really easy to ignore those things. But I think as informed citizens, as journalists, as responsible CEOs and you know, company owners, we need to, we need to be better about ourselves, on ourselves and more, hold ourselves to a higher standard. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. Um, I think that kind of wraps up this discussion. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, that's, that's about it. Yeah. We guys, we just want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. I know, like, what do you think about these issues? Like, how do you think we can solve these kinds of issues? Yeah. And are we viewing this from the wrong perspective, right? Is there a perspective that we aren't considering? Um, we want to hear all of those thoughts. So, Keep the comments coming. Yeah, definitely. And we'll see you all guys next week. Thank you.